You're listening to episode 83 of the Mud Stories podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are never, ever alone. Welcome back to the show. I am so glad to be joining you again this week. It is Wednesday. I hope you are having an amazing week. I know uh, we are crazy busy over here at our house, but whatever it is you find yourself doing, I'm so grateful that you're joining me. And so my husband is here again with me, and we're going to dive today into some mud, some lighthearted mud, some really serious heavy mud. And our hope is that you would leave this place today after this discussion inspired and encouraged to face whatever mud it is that you're going through today. And so you can imagine after that pre-show, there is never a dull moment over here at my house. And so today, Thad is going to start us off by welcoming you to the show And uh, here's to lightheartedness and laughter, even amidst our mud. Here we go. Welcome to Mud Stories. (laughs) You're back. That's true, although I was a little unclear because I think uh, the previous pre-show was a bit long, don't you think? I mean, (laughs) mean, it could have been, that could just be an episode all by itself. So I'm thinking that maybe your pre-show should be like half that length. Well, the goal of a pre-show would be for it to be like 15 or 20 minutes as an episode, not an hour. Right. So why don't we make this episode then 15 or 20 minutes and then... (laughs) But this is your mud story. Well... Why don't we start out with like a little tiny warm-up? Let's talk about some lighthearted mud before we get into deeper mud. Okay. So... You and I have this thing where we're kind of opinionated people, which may surprise some people who know us. So you and I have this thing where we edit ourselves because that's the self-controlled thing to do, right? Well, I think so. But sometimes it's just very difficult to fully edit. In other words, right. it, it, it plays out at moments in which it's just a little too much to take at a given moment. Right. And that's the lighthearted muddiness I'm talking about. So let's talk about some of those things that make it difficult for us to edit. You know, do you know what I'm talking about? So like, you're talking about like pet peeves and stuff like that? Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So like today at lunch, when the hostess set us down at the table, she held out the menu and, you know, we're getting all the kids settled and and we're scooting in the booth and everything. Right. She waits for you to actually take it from her. Right. Like, I'm not busy enough already. Right. Like, can't she just see that I'm busy getting kids settled, so-and-so's fighting about which side they're going to sit on, who they're going to sit by, and there she stands for an inordinate amount of time waiting for my full attention to wait for me to reach for the menu she's extending to me. Like, I... That is a pet peeve of mine. It is such a common thing in restaurants. I think they're told to do that. Like, Like, they're thinking the polite thing to do is to hand it to you directly. But in my opinion, the polite thing to do would be not to require me to 
grab it and then set it down. Right. Why don't you just set it down for me? It stresses me out. Yeah. Like yeah. I have to meet another need. Like I don't have enough needs to meet. Right. At that at that moment. That's I agree. I, I agree. Yeah. So then what happens when that happens? I give you the look like, here we go. Well, I tell you what, <laughs> if you just kind of ignore the moment and like <laughs> act like you're busy doing other things... <laughs> The hostess will eventually do something with that menu. I, I mean, they'll set it down, right? I know. I think I think I have exasperated one just to see. See how long it would take before they'd set it Is down. Is that bad? Uh, probably. Okay, I'm repenting right now. All right. Can well, you think of another one? Oh, yeah. I mean, think, let's just stay on the restaurant thing. There's a place that we eat locally in which, yes, they do the menu thing, but also anytime you order a hamburger, they will ask you, how would you like that hamburger cooked? And what's so funny about that is, you know, this has always been the case when we're talking about steaks. You know, do you want it medium, medium rare, well done, whatever. But now they've kind of decided, well, our hamburgers are high end. Gourmet. And, yes. And <laughs> you must tell us how you want it cooked. Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't matter what you say. That hamburger is coming back well done. You can't get a hamburger there that does. it's not brown all the way through it. So it just has, it's a running joke, truly. And at least one time I've had to stop and say, you know what? In my past experience, the hamburgers are always coming back the same. You tried so to I'm, educate. I'm just going to say medium right now. But just so you know, I'm not expecting pink. I have, I'm to, not. I have to tell you, the, day, the time you decided to do that, instead of just go with it, I was giving you the look like, really? You're going to go there? And you did. And it just... Your words were totally wasted. She didn't get it. She just didn't yeah. get it. And, well, and and so you should just not do that again. Well, probably not. We're really easily irritated, I guess, maybe. Maybe those things wouldn't irritate anyone. Well, think about like the uh like all the, the stores that you buy stuff at, like your Home Depots and your Lowe's. You you go down the list, they for some reason are trained to say something like, Did you find everything you're looking for? And <laughs> that's really common. And <laughs> I have decided, I mean, most everybody going to say yes. They're all oh, going to say yes. no, I see what's coming. But, you know, the truth is, What'd you, do? you don't always find what you're looking for. <laughs> Am I, like, required to say yes? Do I have to say yes just so that they feel good? I, I don't think so. <laughs> so I would say now the majority of time, when it's true that I didn't find everything I'm looking for, I'm just going to be honest. I'm Did you say, say no? Oh, of course. I say it all the time now. Oh, no. Well, because it's true. I mean, aren't they looking for the truth? But then you make the girl feel bad or the guy feel well, bad that you problem. didn't find what you were supposed to do. Like, what are they yeah. supposed to do about it? They're sequestered at a cash register. That's the whole problem of the question. Oh, don't no. ask the question. But yeah, I often I don't find what I'm looking for and they just simply don't have it. Of course, they're they're nice about it. They say, well, can we help you find what that is? I mean, obviously... Girl, actually, I just waited in line for four transactions and I really don't want to go back and, and find yeah, it. Yeah, I usually respond saying, no, I, you just don't have it. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you don't have what I'm looking for. So yeah. I'm going to move on to someplace else. And they're like, all right, all right. <laughs> I mean, they want you to talk to the manager to figure out what it is that you, you, you know, to meet your need, but... Because then it needs to take you another 10 minutes exactly. to get out of the store. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I don't know what's up with bank tellers, but the last time I was at the bank, I walked up to the teller, and I think they're training them to try to make small talk. How's your day? What do you have planned this weekend? And blah, blah, blah. It's like, I did not come here for a social hour with bank teller girl. I just wanted to cash the check and get my money or deposit it or whatever. I'm not really entirely sure what that is, but the last three times I've been to the bank, and I don't go inside the bank very often, mm -hmm. but do you think that's a way of mitigating like bank robbery if you like schmooze with the customer? They're no. not going to rob you or something? No, they're just 
they think they're they're being super nice, but the truth is you have limited time. I mean, they want you to talk and But I feel bad, you know, like I don't want to engage right now, but I don't want to be rude, so I you, try to you edit. You feel obligated a I bit. I do. I do. But I don't want them knowing my business, not to mention whatever I say, who's ever in line behind me is going to hear all of that. It's like a public service announcement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's br- um, let's bring it home for a moment. Okay. I mean, truth We're is, well, we are, but I mean, if you're talking about pet peeves, here's one for you. And it's very close to home. It has okay. to do with you because... Oh, no. Well, and my mom, too. My mom is absolutely kind of guilty of this one. But oh, we'll, I know we'll be in a phone say. conversation. And for some reason, Jackie doesn't hang up the phone. And so... But I do. No, no. You actually rarely do, hon. And, and so... <laughs> I it, like talking I think to you. you. Expect, I think you expect some, the other person to hang up. So I'll hear, right. yeah, I could, if I don't hang up, I might very well hear a long conversation that you have with whoever you're with at that time. And I think you just, it should be your policy, you know, to hang I'm up. I'm letting you in on my life. My mom is no, <laughs> no different, although she'll hang up, but she always, she always um, waits to hang up after she said a few words. She doesn't realize that just when you say goodbye, the phone doesn't <laughs> hang up on its own. So as she goes to flip her phone, phone closed, I often get to hear the real feelings that she has about our conversation. Like my dad might be in the room and I might've just told her something or said something to her. And then I'll hear like the front four or five words of what <laughs> no. she says to my dad. And, it, and sometimes it's like, all right, she didn't, she wasn't real happy about that conversation. As it fades away. As yeah. She well, then it. she closes it, you know, I mean, she's just late closing it. So actually I've, I mean, you know, I've told the kids, anytime I'm on the phone, give me just a few seconds to make sure I've pushed the red button to end the call before you start talking to me. Well, this leads into irritations of marriage, too, because it is hard to live in a relationship with people. I mean, as much as I like you, there are irritating things and just vice versa. I think it's just all these little muddy places are things that we all deal with on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I think humor can go a long way. Sometimes you and I make a joke out of those restaurant issues or or whatever. Just laughing can help. Just take yourself down a few notches. Okay, let's get into your story. So tell everybody where you grew up, uh, what your family of origin was like, you know, your mom, dad, brother, sisters, what you like to do growing up, that sort of thing. Well, I grew up in Turlock, California, which is a, um, a rural community. At least it was at the time. I still think it is somewhat. But I went to school at Turlock Christian, so from kindergarten through graduating in 12th grade. And it was a very good school, but, at the, you know, very small uh, school at the time. I pretty much went all the way through grade school and into high school with knowing pretty much the same 20 to 30 students mm-hmm. the whole time. Which and your was parents both talked there. a unique experience. Yeah, my parents talked there, too. In fact, I had my mom for second and third grade, and I had my dad for fifth and sixth grade. And then again, I had my mom in junior high. She had moved up. but She taught history, right? She did. And so I had her in seventh and eighth grade, depending on the class I was in. And it was great. I mean, I had, my parents are wonderful. And I had a great experience growing up. I think Turlock is a fabulous little town and I wouldn't trade for anything. It was a good experience. And you have your whatever year reunion coming up this summer. Yes. Your little class of how many? Well, I mean, we'll see how many show up. I mean, there, we had about a class of about 30, so... Is this your 30 year? This is it. Yeah, it shows how old I am. But yeah, my 30 year reunion. (laughs) And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I think only about 10 or 12 people right now have have said they were coming. Well, to have known them from K through 12, that's pretty special. 
Yeah, a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you get to know people very well because there's not that many people. Right. Okay. So agricultural area, Christian school. Did you have any mud as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I had, all, you know, the little things growing up. Um, one thing, I'm I'm very fair complexion, so, and I always got freckles, which was uh, one of those things where it's, I think it's harder when you're a kid. I don't, it doesn't bother me now, but it's one of those things where, you know, you can't always do what everybody else does, like you know, spend hours and hours at the lake while people are out tanning themselves. I certainly couldn't do that unless I wanted to burn to a crisp. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... And just all the fine nuances of, of life and how, you know, you can't do everything everybody else does, I think, because of your skin. I think that was a bothersome yeah. issue to me. Other than that, I was heavily into sports, very active. Oh, I broke my leg twice, actually, playing soccer. Um, I think uh, it was a mistake to play soccer. I mean, as much as I loved it, that was the end of my, you know, now, athletic when, career. When you say break your leg, like, what what bones are you talking about? Oh, well, the first time I broke the tibia, which is the big bone in between your knee and your foot. Well, more mud happened after you broke your leg because, you know, you had a little high school romance going well, at the time, right? Yeah, I was 16 years old and I had what I would consider kind of my first love uh, at 16. Had a girlfriend, but unfortunately the moment I broke my leg within like a week she was like i can't put up with this <laughs> so she dumped me Crip. bad oh yeah <laughs> you were on crutches and everything i just couldn't couldn't move the way i used to i guess so uh yeah that relationship was over too so i was kind of down and out Poor thing. yeah i couldn't even get around and then i lost my girlfriend so and then you broke it a second time well yeah yeah well and it then just you were did... in the hospital was that the time you were in the hospital yeah and they had to have surgery they put a pin yeah. down the center of it and mm-hmm. all kinds of terrible things and that's a big bone to break. Yeah, it was uh, not yeah. good. I'm not a huge soccer fan anymore. Yeah, hence the golf. Well, yeah, I do <laughs> like golf. I like basketball, too. Okay, so as you graduated from high school, you were a studious sports kind of guy. Like, what did you have an affinity toward? What did you decide to go study in college? Well, it was about midway through high school that I really, my interest in music grew and grew and grew. My brother and I formed a band and we started performing, you know, any chance we got. And the church we attended at the time was wide open to it. I mean, the youth department was huge. And uh, Well, and it was an era where Christian music was just starting, just starting. to take off. What year I mean, would that have been? At that time, the church was generally still singing straight out of the hymn book. And not the new hymn books either that, that, were, that are full of courses. The traditional. But, yeah, traditional yeah. hymn book. And churches were just starting to sing, you know, some choruses, new things. And then all of a sudden, Christian rock groups started becoming more worship services as opposed mm-hmm. to just performance music. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we got really inspired, and the next thing you know, we're you know we start to form a band. I started learning guitar. My brother was on the keyboard, and we got together a few other guys, and we started playing. And it was kind of uphill from there as far as growing and desiring to be involved in music. By the time. I left high school, I think, in your pre-show, I mentioned that I had traveled a couple times with some singing groups, and my my voice was just growing, and so I sang and played guitar, and by the time I returned after my senior year, we were into writing music, and so we actually tried to make it kind of on in the, in the secular <laughs> scene, you know, try to go places. But it was just really hard. There was, was so, no American Idol back then. <laughs> no, no, of course not. And I wouldn't have been good enough anyway. But 
you know, just that effort of writing music and trying to make it, and uh, we, we were somewhat unsuccessful, I should say, and except for the, the small circle that we were around, our friends and family. Mm-hmm. But that year, a leader in Youth with a Mission, I think it's YWAM, heard us and was really interested in us putting together a band in which we could tour and travel with him as the speaker. And that was going to happen. We were going to be traveling around the world. It was a huge deal. And we couldn't have been more excited. And all of a sudden, they canceled the tour and decided to change. And it was during that summer that then we decided, well, I guess we'll just go to college and and major in music and try to learn more and get better. So that's what I did. So you and your brother had a transitional year and then uh, you ended up at APU. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Finished a degree there in music in four years and uh, immediately after that needed to pay bills <laughs> so I mean I'm not I, honestly I'm not exactly sure that the benefits of an actual music major I mean I think people should think about what you're going to really be doing with it once you're done I, I yeah. was into theory and composition and so fortunately I had a lot of experience in performing and being in groups and so I was already kind of tailored to yeah. leading a church service. And so the best way for me to make an income was to get hired at a church. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Well, your degree then was in music theory. Theory. Mm-hmm. You uh, you also loved musical theater too. Oh, yeah. Musical theater was, was big. Yeah. I, I just love drama and theater. And I love the combination of putting music together with drama. And there were such fabulous big musicals that were being put out for churches to perform and of course, in the secular market too, you have you know it's a it's a huge market now. Mm-hmm. It has has been for you know decades in putting together music and drama into uh, really exciting productions. So I really got heavily involved in that. And the moment I got to that church, that's what I encouraged the church to start doing. And so for both Christmas and Easter, and then other times during the year, we would put together big events. And that is where I met you. Right. Well, for those who have heard me share my story, they would recognize the intersection there. Yeah. A musical theater, a musical called Two from Galilee at Christmas time based on a book by Marjorie Holmes. An incredible musical, by the way. It's really good. But you worked as a music pastor because what else do you do with a music theory degree uh, other than teach music, I guess? Yeah, teach. <laughs> those are your options. So I imagine there's some mud you face when you're on staff at a church. Oh, yeah. I'm guessing... There's somebody listening who maybe is married to somebody who's on staff at a church or is on staff at a church or volunteers at a church. Let's talk about a little bit of mud you might face if you are on staff at a church or just kind of crazy, crazy situations. It's amazing how many people really feel like musically they've got it together. (laughs) And so, you know, whether or not they think that they're great writers, like they really have written a great song and they want you to sing it for church. Or they just have lyrics and they think they're a great lyricist and they want you to take your time to like put music to it. I've had that happen. Or probably the most common is people in the church that believe that they just are great singers. And so, you know, you, you feel for them. You know, you really want to give them an opportunity. With right. their talent. But man, you know, you're just always in this position of, you know, breaking their heart if you, you know, if you don't come through and let them sing, you know, as a solo for the church or what have you. 
it's, that's a hard thing in being in that role and having the responsibility of producing excellence. Because I mean, mm-hmm. you're you're putting together music with the idea that you're going to be inspiring people to worship God. So excellence, I think, is part of that. But then you're torn with also reaching out to your your congregation, people that want to be involved. How do you deal with people that really just don't mm-hmm. have it? Participation. That's right. Yeah, so, that's that's really tough. Tough one. On the other end, though, you know, having been married to somebody who works at a church, um, and and now we have a part-time job at a church, I, or I shouldn't say we, you have a part-time job at a church. That's true. There is a difficulty on the other side, being on staff, because you're sort of in a fishbowl. People like to idealize your life, think that you are on a pedestal in a sense, or, you know... I think as people, we just have this desire to have something to look up to. And so sometimes we unrealistically make a story in our minds about what a pastor's life is about. And so it's amazing how many people are flocking to want to just be your friend. Oh, I think you... You know what I mean? Yeah, you hit on the head. I think you have kind of a false idea of the relationships you have as a pastor, because as a pastor, people just want to be around you and want to communicate to you and want, they like the connection. It's kind of... Well, it makes them feel like they might be more important if they're close to somebody who they think is important. I believe you're right. Yeah. And I I think the problem with that is the moment that something goes wrong, I mean, as did in my case, uh, more than likely you're going to realize that these people really aren't close friends of yours, even though you kind of got the impression that you're really important, that you, that you really have a hundred friends, a hundred people that just want to stand around you. The truth is, you know, when stuff hits the fan, uh, or not only just stuff, when you are no longer in that position, being hired at that job, uh, you become just a normal person and it can be surprising to end up being just a regular person in a pew every Sunday. Yeah, I can. Because friendships aren't just automatic. They're not. I and mean, that's really hard. It is hard. It's uh, it's a challenge then mm-hmm. to once you exit that role to find yourself really just kind of a commoner, so to speak. Yeah. And you realize that uh, you might have had a lot of what you had just because of your title. Mm-hmm. And and that's a sort of coming to the end of ourselves because it, it sometimes we tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought when we take things like that for granted. And then when we don't have them, it's sort of a little bit of an internal crash also. It's kind of sad. But at the same time, I mean, overcoming that is important for us all. And I think being humbled is a positive experience. It can if be. If you let it be. It can be. And unfortunately, that problem is a pretty common thing amongst Pastors all the way up to senior pastors, they make mistakes that are centered around pride because they're thrust into this very upfront, popular kind of position. Um, And it starts Mm -hmm. playing with their emotions and their feelings. And they they simply kind of forget what their role really is and what it should be. And it it creates failure. It's pretty easy. Well, it's a, I think a lot of times it's not intentional. It's just a dangerous drift if you're not cognizant and really mindful and aware to be looking out for it and to put safeguards in place to guard against it. 
So let's talk about your transition out of that job because your transition out of that job had to do with me and had to do with failure and pride that had gotten in the way. What would you say predisposed you as a guy to be vulnerable or even capable of having an affair? Because I'm guessing it was something you never you never imagined you could do or be, be capable of. <laughs> well, that's a... That's a. I know that's a big. Question. That's a big question, and that could take way more than just an episode to cover. But I think that you know I can think back to early on in my relationships. I can say that I was a guy that uh, wasn't really interested in short-term relationships. I had pretty much long-term relationship after long-term relationship, starting from when I was 16 years old, and at the time I got married, it, I was 24. So. I had, you know, probably you can count them on one hand, and I just was consistently uh, dating someone. But what happened, I believe, was that I got to the point where I felt like, what's the natural next thing to do? I mean, I'm 24 Mm -hmm. years old. I didn't really know, am am I ready to get married? College is over. College is over. You're kind of feeling a little distant from the people that kept it exciting all this time. And here you are dating a girl, and... I'm thinking back to, well, I was dating a girl before her for a year and a half, and now I've been dating her for a long while. And um, There's a lot I, invested. I just, I think I, I kind of felt like, well, isn't it the next thing to do to get married? Without really thinking it completely through. I do remember distinctly having a conversation with my brother at one point, just saying, hey, do you, what, do you, what do you do with this? I mean, here I am. I know she would probably like to get married, but I'm... I'm not sure. I don't really know what I should feel. How does one know? How does one know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't remember him offering me any, any particular advice other than, you know, you just kind of know. More of a feeling response instead of me maybe thinking about everything else besides feelings. Right. And I know I had, I had love for her. There's no doubt about that. But did I really grasp what it meant to commit yourself fully to a person for the rest of your mm-hmm. life. And I think I was immature on that point. Not to mention as a Christian trying to stay pure for marriage. That's pretty tough dating, you know, a couple years. It's like, it's sort of, I can remember back. It's sort of like, well, you either break up or you get married because the temptation physically is just too hard. Sure. There's a tendency to to make a decision to go ahead and get married just based on the fact that you you, you, you want to have sex. I mean, just right. to be blunt about it. Yeah. I mean, the, the bottom line is you're, you're at an age where you're just, your hormones are just kicking in full, full gear. And so it's just hard in that sense. But I think beyond that issue, I mm-hmm. think not really fully grasping the importance of understanding how uh, long lasting that marriage decision is. Right. So after I got married, it wasn't more than just within a couple of years that I realized that I then mentally kind of had some problems in the sense that I was so used to prior to getting married to pursuing girls and and dating for long periods of time. And now girls would be walking across my pathway in various circles and in situations. And yet in my mind, I'm thinking, wait a second, you know, that's completely off limits. I can't like be nice to her in a way that I would be interested in dating her because I'm married to someone. And I just, I think it started to discourage me because I, I, thought then that maybe I had made my decision too quickly. And 
it impacted me in such a way that I couldn't quite get over the fact that I was... This was forever. This was forever. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. And so... I think there was a level of discouragement, maybe separate even a, from the qualities of your wife. I mean, yeah, she was yeah. a she was in many ways a fabulous, a fabulous person, lovely, and even to this day, mm-hmm. I have great appreciation for her for all that she certainly has done in reference to you. Um, I've yeah. had no contact with her, but she you know, certainly... I was on another podcast and I shared things about her and what she's written to me beyond what I shared on the blog, mm-hmm. um, the Undone Redone podcast. And uh, I just can't speak highly enough of her character and and all she's done really to contribute towards our healing. I'll just say that it's no. I think you're right. And, an example of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, what I'm saying now is looking back years and years ago. Yeah. But uh, I found that in those first few years, there were other things that caused problems in our relationship. Probably the one that sticks out the most is my feeling that she might not have seen the role of pastor's wife as something she wanted to do. Yeah. I mean... Well, she didn't sign up for it. Well, <laughs> I mean, no, that's and, not who you were when you met. That's right. I wasn't. And I think as I got involved in the church, you know, she wasn't exactly what she saw herself doing in many mm-hmm. ways. And I felt a little disconnected. In other words, I didn't see her as wanting to be involved in what I do and who I am at that time. Mm-hmm. And there was a little pushback. I think there was a little separation that began to take place at different times. And of course, I was there for f- five years, I think, five or six years. And during those years, there were needs of mine then that I felt that weren't being met. I probably at the time also felt a little disrespected. And as a result, was another area that I just left myself a little more open, more vulnerable to mm-hmm. the ability to find myself needing and wanting something else. And it was about that time that I met you. Yeah. And that was a musical. And I was doing just what I had been doing for years, which was you know pull a bunch of people together and put on this big show that the people of the church I know really love, the people of the community that came to these things. It was a big deal, a big event, and I had to pour a lot of my energy and effort into it. And then I brought you into that one show, and all of a sudden, for me, many of the little, and they're they're small details, but many of those little details that I was missing in my other relationship, you just filled them up. You know, the conversation, the way you looked at me, the way I felt you respected what I did, how you were willing to put in extra time to make something great in regards to my role there at that church. Which I hate to break to you, wasn't really in the beginning about thinking you were so amazing. It was incredible music. It was an incredible opportunity to sing and do musical theater. You know, we had extra practices. Of course I wanted to practice. I loved singing. Mm -hmm. And I loved acting and drama, musical theater. And... You know, it didn't help that I was playing a role. I mean, you were Joseph, I was Mary. It was a story based on the book Two from Galilee by Marjorie Holmes, which is historical fiction of the love story of Mary and Joseph. So the role was trying to, uh, you know, imagine what they would have felt. And so it was easy to blur those lines together. Maybe you kept them more clear than I did. I didn't really realize it, it really hit me by surprise. 
Well, certainly, I would yeah. agree with that. I think that I certainly had no agenda, you know, right. when I first met you. Right. I was. I and think, most people who have affairs don't necessarily have an agenda either. I think that's the critical thing to realize. This is a slow process. One little thing leads to the next, and pretty soon you land in a place where you'd never imagine you'd be. Sure. I mean, months and months went by as we just worked together to make this a great musical, to interact with everybody mm -hmm. that was involved. And it was really quite a bit later that all of these thoughts that I'm now able to talk about yeah. kind of came into... Um, you understand it better in hindsight. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, you know, what followed was two years of a double life. You know, certainly a year of that was physical for sure, um, which always, you know, from the emotional standpoint can lead physical very easily. And then it became a dilemma of um, confession and stopping that. And, and even after that became so hard. Yes, it was a difficult time. There's no doubt about it. For anyone, yeah. Well, I asked the community if there was any questions anyone had for you, and I want to play for you one that came in. Okay. Hi, Thad and Jackie. First of all, thank you so much for your boldness in sharing your story. I found your story at a time of our lives when our marriage was incredibly difficult, dealing with infidelity and pornography addiction, so your story gave us a lot of hope and encouragement and grace in what God can do. First of all, I want to um, ask Thad uh, just a brief question, how he deals with deep regret in his life, um, something that is very applicable to us. And also, how do you deal with teaching your sons to avoid some of the sexual temptation pitfalls that uh, he had to deal with? I would like to hear some practical advice with that. So again, thank you so much for doing these podcasts and for Thad being willing to be interviewed by your wife. Again, we really appreciate it, and I look forward to hearing your answers. Thank you. So there's some perspective that goes behind answering a question like that. It's certainly a difficult question, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I've there's always going to be some form of regret that sits with you for quite some time after you've experienced failure. And the hope, of course, is that you're able to either manage it or remove it from your life in some way so that it doesn't just plague you with guilt for mm -hmm. just years and years. I remember distinctively sitting in church within the first couple of years after this time, now sitting out in the congregation <laughs> uh, yeah. and finding it really challenging to even just sing and worship because I was so overwhelmed with my failure and it was a time really of mourning, I guess you could say, just really... Lamenting. Yeah, yeah, the experience of what I've gone through and what I've just done lasted for a while. It was during those first couple of years, though, that I heard a sermon from the pastor of the church that we were attending at the time. And he was talking about James 5, verse 16. And it was the, a verse that I had read before, but it's that one that says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other and you may be healed. And he was bringing out some of the context of this idea of confessing your sins to each other. And I was surprised in what he said, and this is what impacted me so much, 
is that often when I had failed in some way in the past, I had confessed to God that I had made a mistake and I felt forgiven by him as he promised in his word. But even if I felt like the sin that I had done or the failure that I had had done was really only between me and God, James is talking about a need to share that information or confess those things to one another. And I realized that there might be a need to let people know who have heard about my failure that they know that I'm not okay with it. In other words, it's important to make a distinction for people who might see your situation and think, well, he's just, you know... He doesn't care. Yeah, he doesn't care about the sin that's in his life or he's, he's committed a failure of some sort and he's just moving right along. But no, actually, I wanted to share and say to them, you know what, I realize that I've made a huge mistake and that I've really gone against what God's teaching is and I know it's wrong. It was that part of the sermon in which I realized, wow, possibly for more healing in my life, I really need to open up to those people who are aware of this failure and yet might be thinking that I'm just okay with it. Yeah, people who had been observers. Yes. Because when you obviously left your job as a pastor in the aftermath of all of this, um, it was a pretty abrupt ending for you. It was. I mean, I didn't really give anybody a chance to have any long conversations with me. I did get a few phone calls, but Mm -hmm. pretty much I kind of walked away because I just didn't know exactly how to deal with it. But after I had heard this, I actually decided to call the senior pastor, who was still the same pastor at the church, and ask him if there was any way that I could confess, if I could share with people that I'm not okay with the failure that's been in my life. And I kind of left it up to him on how I could possibly do that. And he recommended that I come on, I think it was a Thursday night, and and come to the elder board and share my thoughts, and that would be the best method for what I was trying to achieve. And I said, great, I'll do that, I'll be there. So that evening, before I actually got up to the elder board, a person that I had known quite well at the church met me for dinner in advance, and we went and had some dinner, and he encouraged me so much because he knew what I had gone through He was fully aware of the failure of my life, and I shared with him kind of my plan in talking with the elder board, and he just just let me know how much I was appreciated and loved, Mm. and it really gave me some energy to walk into that room at that time. Yes, it did. Courage. Well, and this was years later. This wasn't right after it happened. You know, this was years later. It was. And yet people in those beginning moments had pursued you, but you had been closed to their advances. You want to speak to that a little bit? Because I think when when we know of people who have failed in life and we maybe don't agree with what they're doing or what they're choosing, but yet we've had relationship with them and we miss them and we pursue them and we get rejected, there's not a lot of motivation to move forward. We're like, well, we checked off our effort to reach out to them, but they didn't, you know, they're off on their Sin tangent, you know? Yeah, I would say that really you should just be relentless. That you would pursue that person not being discouraged by an initial, you know, pushback from them. What they really need is a person who consistently wants to be their friend. 
And I would just say that I didn't really have that. I mean, there were certainly a few uh, very good men who I, I received a call from. But after that, I never heard from them again. I just would say that there is a lot of room in a person's life for time to pass. And I would say, don't stop. Don't stop pursuing that person. If you want to reach out and impact them and you feel like you can't quite get to them because they're closed off, just don't stop. Mm -hmm. Keep, you know, kind of knocking on that wall that's there. And I believe that it would might be a matter of time. It might take a lot of time, but your pursuit will be appreciated. They will see you as a quality friend at that point. Yeah, it won't be forgotten. And it will mean so very much. And it is in time where healing really does happen. I think regrets can fade. I love the second half of that verse that talks about how by our confession, we are healed by doing that. And there's a freedom that comes from shattering the secrecy that had been happening, the privacy of you know, carrying the weight of our failure, of our sin. Um, even there could be regret and guilt if tragedy has happened to you and it wasn't your choice or, you know, hard things happened to you just out of nowhere. You can still have regret of how you dealt with it. And, you know, regret is a really hard thing. It's kind of like bitterness. It, it grows and festers. And it's that confession that really does heal us. But it takes time. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And let me just add one more thought here. I know that her question was about deep regret and maybe where I was right now in my life. And this is a really tough... It's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky to talk about because mm -hmm, the truth is, at this point, I don't really feel a whole lot of regret. And the reason is, is be yeah, because yeah. God has just blessed my life so much. I mean, with, with four beautiful children. And it's really hard at this point to, you know, be regretful about it. I mean, he has taken my life and given me opportunity for ministry. I have been involved in a lot of activities with you, Jackie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we have uh, influenced people in what we do, whether it be through music or through your ministry or opportunities that we get to tell people about our lives. We've done some marriage mentoring. Marriage mentoring. Mm -hmm. We've done some uh, new Christians to the church kind of meetings where... Leadership. Leadership yeah. type meetings. Um, boy, it's just a long list. And then add to that, you know, our children and everything. I mean, at this stage of my life, I think I've kind of been there and done mm -hmm. that. And God has just almost erased those those deep regrets mm -hmm. that were once present in my life. And it's only by the grace of God that that's the case. Well, and I think, too, not you talked about confessing our sin to God directly. And then how James says confessing it to one another. But another thing that we can do is look to Scripture to see the character of God. Because surrendering our regret, in a way, is surrendering our right to be a victim at the hands of our own choices. Mm. And I think it's really important to look at what Scripture says, to see what God's character was and how He dealt with His people. You know, the Israelites were really stubborn. They had a lot of failures. And again and again and again, God not only pursued them, but restored them 
and he does that for us too. He's the same. And yet there's a component, like you're saying, that when we let secrecy reign, it limits our ability to be set free. Mm-hmm. And the problem then becomes, okay, well, who do you tell? You know, what if it's a private regret or something that not everyone even is aware of something in your own heart, you know, those kind of issues become more complicated because it's not a big public failure that's obvious who to confess to. But we need to find those safe people to let us not grow. You know, shame really grows in secrecy. What yeah. you say? Well, I would add to that that absolutely I don't think you're regrets are going to be helped at all by just announcing on social media to the world you right. know your We're failures not talking about oversharing no that's right. unnecessary I, I really for me it's as people become aware of a failure that you have that you take a few minutes to explain to them at least enough detail so that they understand you know it really was a failure of sin and that it is your plan to do your best to follow Christ as you know time moves forward. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, the second half of her question was about kids and raising our kids and mm-hmm. helping them through the inevitability of temptation. Sure. What would you say to that? Well, I think so much of it depends on our relationship with our kids. And we have decided to try to remain as open as possible with them so that they always know that they can talk to us. And I know that might sound common for parents, but I, I will say that from my own experience, I don't I didn't feel like that when I was growing up. My parents are are still wonderful, wonderful parents, but I didn't really have the kind of open relationship where we could just talk about anything. Mm-hmm. And the, I know that Jackie, yeah, you've been, you've been really good at this, you know, with, with Love our you, kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You've been really good with this. Era. And we, Thank you know, you. we have kind of made that decision now to create an atmosphere of openness. Mm-hmm. And w- you and I have also worked really hard to make sure that we have good answers for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I mentioned this before, but just that striving, to always gain knowledge about things so that when they come to you with an answer, I mean a question, that you do have something to offer to them. So that openness and being able to answer their questions and, and, and not in an atmosphere of judgment, but in a, a really you know gentle, warm mm-hmm. atmosphere so they feel like they can talk to you. A conversational tone. Absolutely. Because it's not about a checklist of rights and wrongs. It's not about a to-do list that we have to do to please God. It's about creating an atmosphere in, within our family of openness and communication that we talk about everything and we really explain and and wrestle through together why it's not a benefit to disobey. And how joy comes in our lives through giving thanks to God and our obedience is a manifestation of our profound gratitude for what God has done. And so the conversation shifts from you shouldn't do this, you have to stop doing this, you have to be careful doing this, to we get to respond to God in this way and honor Him with the behavior in our lives. And this is an exciting opportunity that we have to give back for all that He's done. 
for us. Not that it gains us any more love or points with him, but it brings our lives more joy. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I was just thinking that we spend a good amount of time trying to encourage them to be open and honest. And I would say just like we brought into our own relationship this attitude of no secrets, we're trying to instill that in mm -hmm. them as well. So critical. So that they feel like they can be open and honest with us. And that's hard. I mean, in relationship, it's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to dare to put yourself out there. I mean, even when you're married to someone, it can be scary to be, you know, soul-bearingly honest. But the benefit that comes. Yeah, well, we've is... seen, I mean, part of the failure in our, I know for me in my previous relationship was the fact that I, had a tendency to keep secrets. In other words, I wasn't open and honest about all the little mm -hmm. details. And I think when we came into our relationship and, and had committed to each other that we made a decision that secrets were not going to be part of our relationship, no mm -hmm. matter what they were. And we're trying to also instill that in our children. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So we have time for one last question. And it was sent to me from Tammy over on Snapchat. And for those of you who are, are on Snapchat, you can find me at, at Jackie underscore Watkins. I'd love to connect with you there. I'm really liking Snapchat, babe. You should get on Snapchat. I'll probably pass. Do you even know what Snapchat is? I do. I have a general idea. Okay. Yeah. It's super fun. I'm Just, sure. You, you can trust me. Okay, so it came on Snapchat, and the question was, if you had any advice for any husbands out there who have a wife who blogs or even podcasts, or just does anything creative in general. Because it can take up a lot of time. And it's... Wow, yeah, well, that's <laughs> certainly true. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say move out now. No, that, that wouldn't be good. Oh. No, I think... We've struggled with this. Absolutely. You know, and this it's been hard. It's been hard because you spend a lot of hours working on your podcast. I mean, previously more on your blog, but... Uh, this has been a growing experience for me too, just as just as it's been for you. Mm -hmm. I think uh, you have to have a tremendous amount of patience because it does take a lot of time. There's no doubt that blogging and podcasting both are time consuming, but I believe that it's a tremendous ministry. There's an opportunity to reach people uh, in places you would never have an opportunity to, to reach. I mean, the way social media is, it's worldwide. Um, I know you, Jackie, have you'll get emails and comments from people just all over the world. Mm -hmm. And that is just simply amazing. We live in a time in which the opportunity to kind of almost build our own church, our own community of people that are interested in what it can be, can be said through a podcast or through a blog is just amazing. And the, uh, I think missing that opportunity would be a mistake. And so I would encourage husbands uh, if if that's the case, or just a, in generally a spouse, to you know try to see the big picture, see the the role that your wife is playing in in the kingdom, because really isn't our whole purpose here to further Christ's kingdom, and if your wife has got an opportunity like that to to reach out to a lot of people, wow, that's that's huge, and it might be the way in which you can can be part of the ministry too, is just to, you know, pick up during the times in which she is uh, 
busy doing that, whether it be at the house with the kids or whatever it might be, whatever your mm-hmm. role is, I think it just gives you an opportunity to be, to participate in that ministry. I will say it's been it's had it's been had some tough moments for us. I mean, so sometimes where it might get difficult would be especially at night where, you know, I'm ready to go to bed and mm-hmm. you're you're in the other room, you know, working on a podcast. And yeah, I think um it would be helpful to not always have a consistent routine of not going to bed at the same time your husband goes to bed. I mean, I, I personally uh, appreciate the times in which, you know, you kind of set the computer aside and are able to um, to come to bed at the same time I do. Yeah, prioritize that. Yeah, just make that part of it. Um, and part of that's for us to do as creatives to make sure we're balancing well, sometimes we get out of balance and to be checking our motives as to why that is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is really hard if you're married to somebody who doesn't really get a vision of that kingdom perspective, you know, and there's a lot of tension there. Or there can be. And so what would you say to the woman who blogs, what she could do to maybe soften her husband's heart to her? kingdom calling, so to speak. Well, I think there's maybe a couple things. One would be that um, if you could involve him some way in the whole process. In other words, maybe maybe there's a, a role that he can play in the blogging work and that you do. I mean, maybe you could part, he could participate somehow in the writing or maybe in the ideas of what you might write about or Editing, editing, or the graphics, or maybe there's just something mm-hmm. that he could do that be with, that would make him feel an ownership in your work on your blog. The other would be kind of a the flip side of that, which is I think the blogger you would need to um, recognize where he's at, try to see his perspective, recognize that he's also got agendas and things that he wants to accomplish and get done. And without him asking, you know, participate in those things so that he sees you um, being interested in the things that interest him. And And I think, and engaged. And I think that as a result, he naturally will then be more accepting of things that you are interested in. And so I think the more that we support one another, the more that our attitudes towards the things that we do will soften and become more gracious and more loving towards what each person has as part of their lives. Yeah, I think that is true. And I think just like we talked about before, making sure we are being mindful and purposeful in meeting each other's needs and keeping those needs as a priority will help circumvent and prevent a lot of the issues that might otherwise surface when it comes to these sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm super thankful that you came and you spent these two hours with me, even though we didn't intend for the pre-show to be a full hour. But I'm super glad you said yes. Well, of course I said yes. I mean, I <laughs> that, that, that's, that was needed for sure. And you're finally subscribed to my show. That's true. And you're at the very top. Yes, I am. As it should be. You always will be. All right. Well, thanks again. Love you. Love you, man. Well, that's all for this week. I am so glad you joined me. And whatever it is you're facing today, I want you to know you're not alone. 
I will be here to meet you in this place next week to share more mud stories with you. And I don't want you to miss one thing. So make sure you're subscribed to the show. All you have to do is go to JackieWatkins.com forward slash iTunes. Or if you're listening in the Purple Podcast app, you can just click on the artwork of this show on your mobile device. And underneath there, there will be a link where you can subscribe or even leave me a rating or review. I'd be so thankful to read your words. Have a beautiful day.